You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning and welcome to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam radio. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday, the 1st of October, 2023. And you're listening live to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. On Weekend World, we go behind the week's headlines. We talk about things that have happened in the world, all around the world, during the week. And um, we try and get into some of the details that you may not see in the headlines, that you uh, that may not become apparent if you, uh, perhaps if you... Uh, watch the news or or listen to the news on the radio. Uh, and we try to uh, look at the news from an Islamic perspective. I'm very lucky to be joined uh, today uh, by regular contributor, contributor Dr. Abdul Alim. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Alim. Thank you for joining us on Weekend World. Uh, hopefully we should have... Uh, uh, Dr. Aleem on the line uh, very, very shortly. Um, I'm going to try again now, Dr. Aleem. Hello, Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Dr. Aleem. Thank you for joining us again today. Um, I'm sure you've had a very busy week, and uh, it seems like um, the the news cycle um, never really stops, goes around um, a, again and again, and uh, uh, it's it's always very difficult to decide exactly what to talk about and what what themes to discuss on uh, on the program here on uh, on voice of islam but today uh, and there was a, a few interesting things that happened and and there was um there was a scandal in the canadian parliament which led to the speaker of the house resigning and and it's really worth unpacking exactly what happened because on the face of it what happened was that um uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was invited to come and uh, speak to the the House of Commons there in Canada. And um, the Speaker of the House had also invited some um, veterans of the Second World War. And that included uh, one gentleman who was given a standing ovation by the House of Commons, and he was acclaimed as a war hero for having fought in the Second World War. And on the face of it, it seems like a fairly benign and and innocuous thing. I mean, it's it's you know it's been a number of years since the Second World War now, and the veterans are getting older and older. And this ninety-eight-year-old gentleman was invited to the House of Commons, and he was giving a given a standing ovation. Of course. Um, what didn't become uh, apparent at the time, but did afterwards, was that um, this gentleman had actually fought on the German side. So he was a, a voluntary member of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, which was um, accused of killing um, uh, Polish uh, citizens and Jewish civilians. Um, uh, and, of course, that caused a huge scandal because essentially... Um, uh, um, a member of a Nazi um, fighting unit had been um, given a, um, a standing ovation on uh, in the Canadian House of Commons. The Speaker of the House um, apologised, the Prime Minister uh, apologised, and, and ultimately um, the Speaker of the House of Commons resigned. Um, and Dr. Liam, I think, I mean, on the face of it, this is just a, this is just a scandal. 
a bit a little bit of political hay was made out of this but what's really interesting is that what it tells us about the the narratives that are currently playing out when we see people talking about Ukraine versus Russia um and at the moment the the west for want of a better word the self-defined west um have um, put all of their political economic and military might behind Ukraine against Russia uh, calling this as an an unfair aggression by by Russia and I think we can uh, many people can can look at the way in which uh, Russia has acted and and say that that could, that should be conde- condemned in many ways but the question is 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 the is the Ukrainian side of this as simple and as cut and dried um, because much of the nar- narrative of Ukraine versus Russia seems to be an extension of what happened during the Second World War, and it's pretty obvious that um, that the Russians were fighting on on the side of the Allies, uh, and therefore uh, many individuals who were fighting within Ukraine against the Russians were actually fighting on on the sides of the German aggressors and and, and on the side of of um, of uh, Nazi units, um, and uh, and so this this narrative is is somewhat muddied and somewhat unclear your thoughts on this uh yes i believe that um probably the right way to describe it is muddied and unclear but when you said about when you talked about the noises the the news streams uh, you know we talked about this sometimes some time ago there are always three news streams that we look at you know the mm-hmm the pro side of the news stream the opposite side of the news stream and then what we call sometimes the independent or the neutral sides mm. and it's very difficult sometimes to figure out exactly what is going on because there's so much uh, you know complexity in the picture mm. but here it does seem that there is now an alternative source of information building up about this uh, soft underbelly of the west mm. uh, which was uh, what went on during the second world war um because i i i do think that we have talked about this a lot where we have said that there has always been a sort of uh, a friction between capitalism and socialism mm. or communism which sort of died after the russian soviet union basically collapsed but socialism is still very much alive and i believe that um you know we have talked about the fact that in many cases uh there were people supported uh, on the side of uh, in, in a non-democratic way because it was friendly to capitalism mm. and i think we have to realize that <clears throat> most global decisions are not based on on justice or fair play they are mainly based on who is going to profit from what and mm. who is going to make more money and that's unfortunately the real reality on the ground mm. So I think in this case, um, when uh, the West found uh, that it was convenient to actually crush the fascist forces of the German Nazis, uh, the Soviets were very good allies. Mm. And we know that the uh, Soviets lost about 26 million mm. Soviet men uh, defending the Russian side. And of course, the real victory for the allies was brought about by the Russian defense of Leningrad and Moscow mm. against the Nazi forces. Uh, as opposed to that, uh, the U.S. lost only 400,000 soldiers in this allied battle. So obviously the Russians had a huge worry and still have a worry about the proliferation of far-right and Nazi groups in mm. the West, 
which we believe actually do exist. Uh, the Western press actually does fully uh, acknowledge the presence of far-right groups. Mm. Uh, they are quite well organized. We know that there are several far-right parties in all, most of the Western uh, European uh, countries. Um, and there is, of course, an element of uh, extremism and uh, these far-right nationalist groups also in the U.S., mm. against which FBI has given several warnings. And of late, I think last year or about six months back, there was a report by FBI that came out which said that the biggest threat to the U.S. is not from any Muslim radicals, but it is from its own far-right groups. Mm. <clears throat> the, uh, the more the, more the, the uh, ethnocentric and the racist groups that actually exist. So I think that there is a sort of an underbelly of the West that they don't want to look at. And uh, and in this case, this incident actually just highlights uh, a sort of an inadvertent mistake that was to be, uh, that was to come about because it's very difficult to keep denying that lots of uh, Nazis did get uh, away and, and got away easily and did not get tried at the Nuremberg trial in this, in the Second World War. Mm. And several of them got, uh, you know, uh, protections in some parts of the Western world. Uh, it's now well documented. And uh, the first question to ask is, was, was what was Mr. Uh, Huka, or I don't know what was his name, but uh, this man who was celebrated in the in mm. parliament was doing in the first place in the parliament itself. Mm. You know, if, if there was a 98-year-old veteran who uh, obviously would not have been able to completely um, you know, uh, live secretly mm. over the last almost 50 years in a Western uh, country uh, can be called to Parliament and then celebrated by the Speaker, who of course had to resign after the uproar, uh, seems that there's, there must be something going on which uh, even the Western governments and Western scholars and the mainstream media doesn't want to fully acknowledge, actually. Mm. Uh, it is, of course, embarrassing. Um, and I believe that uh, now this incident seems to start clearing out some of the doubts that have been spelled out against Mr. Zelensky's association with the far-right groups in Ukraine and his association with the Azov, Blue, uh, uh, Azov uh, Regiment, which is aligned with the far-right in Ukraine itself. So I think that, uh, you know, in fairness of things, uh, as you said, it's it's a bit muddied, but you know, we need to really start looking at what is really going on and start sifting through the information pile to find out exactly what is going on. Is it really that <clears throat> the West finds now um, socialism as a real threat to capitalist forces uh, and a, a sort of a restriction to unbridled um, capitalist, uh, you know, um, profit-making that's going on? And is that a real problem? And in that process, do they are they okay with finding partners that they initially thought were dangerous to them? Mm. <clears throat> because it's a it's a marriage of convenience, and you know you 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 cultivate your partners, and you say you need to just deal with the biggest threat. Mm. So the current discourse on painting China as an army, as as an enemy, and the Russians as an enemy, who were their previous allies, is a bit. Uh, is a bit uh, of serious concern, actually. Mm. And, you know, we have talked about how this can actually uh, catapult us into very, very disastrous situations in future. And I guess that 
that's really how this needs to be framed, isn't it? As you said, from a from an economic perspective, from the perspective of those individuals who, um, uh, you, you know, would would have an have an understanding of the world as this is about ideology, and uh, clearly there is this is uh, clearly there is a part of the world which is um, engaged in the idea of. Um, uh, a, a proper functioning economic system, i.e. capitalism and democracy and freedom versus the rest of the world, which is not engaged with these ideals, who are corrupt, who don't believe in democracy, who don't believe in freedom. Uh, and yet we see within the so-called West that actually freedoms are significantly limited um, and that um, the economic system doesn't work for the advantage of the vast majority. And in fact, it is a, a system of deep inequality and inequity. Um, and and so it, it, this really is, isn't about ideology, but really is about those individuals who are, or, or uh, nation states who are looking after their own interests. And I think that one, you know, people might say, but what, you know, when we, when we talk about the idea that there are marriages of convenience in terms of individuals who are employed or engaged with, then there are a couple of examples that immediately spring to mind. And in all of this, when the when uh, the Russians claim that Ukraine has um, fascist and Nazi elements uh, deep deep within um, uh, Ukrainian society, then they point at the fact that there are, in fact, paramilitary groups who are engaged with and supported by the Ukrainian government, which are fascist far-right groups. And they have been engaged in eastern Ukraine for a number of years, fighting against the Russians. And the simple fact of the matter is that these are groups who hold white supremacist views and and they are supported by the by the Ukrainian government. This is not this is not a thing that that uh, can be denied. It's a thing that has been actually covered by the mainstream media, uh, even in the in, in the UK. And so it's uh, you know these are, these are questions of facts, not questions of conspiracy theory. Um, and and one example that that really clearly comes to mind is uh, uh, Werner von Braun, who was. The former marshal of uh, um, of space flight um, at NASA, he was the center director at NASA, and he was a he was a German scientist. And after the Second World War, he was brought into the United States to essentially help to um, uh, run the uh, the NASA program, the technical side of the NASA program, to to get a U.S. Um, space flight to the point where they were able to land on the moon. But his history, when you look back, is that he worked for the German army. He was a scientist, um, but he worked for the German army. He developed um, uh, liquid fuel missiles in the 1930s. It was army-funded research. He was a member of the SS equestrian unit um, prior to World War II and joined the Nazi party in 1937 and became a um, a junior SS officer in 1940. So this is someone who was a Nazi. He worked for the Nazis. He was part of the army machinery. He helped to develop the bombs that landed, uh, that that dropped uh, the the rockets that dropped bombs on uh, the UK, on London, on many parts of Western Europe. 
and and yet he this is an individual who was um cleansed of this past and then brought brought into the the US uh, and established himself as um as a prominent figure within the US um space agency uh, and it's 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 a curious thing because clearly this was a question of saying well we need the brightest and the best to to um, bring us forward in terms of our technology and help us to um, stay ahead of the Russians. And as you said, the, these became this became a, um, is another example of a marriage of convenience where uh, individuals with with very murky pasts and individuals of, of dubious moral character were brought in be- because it stood to the advantage of a nation like the United States to do so. Um, and so I think that um, when we when we reflect on this, what we can understand is that actually there is there's no black and white here. There is no nation that can claim to be somehow um, the 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 individual nation that is um, the most morally upright that stands wholly for freedom um, and uh, uh, and moral right and 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 therefore can claim to be the world's police policeman, as it were. Uh, which uh, America has done for a number of decades, and and involved itself in in protracted um, illegal um, military engagements, which have led to the deaths of uh, tens and thousands of um, uh, innocent civilians and citizens all around the world. So um, it is it's a disturbing narrative, and unfortunately one which um, many many people buy into. Indeed, I think that. Um Oh, in terms of, uh, if you look at the development of history, uh, it, it would also appear to me that uh, there is now a misalignment between uh, the earlier version of the nation states in the Western part of the world that were held up as models for most of the world for the last 50, 70 years. Mm. Um, and this is this has to do with the fact that these were, and there are still good examples of responsible welfare governments mm. and welfare nation states in Europe. You know, the Scandinavians are still held up as a model. Yeah. Um, you know, UK was was one of the best examples of a social welfare state mm. based on the NHS beverage model. So I believe that yes, these nation states started uh, with a, a very very sound platform. There was a social contract between the citizens and the state, mm. and capitalism worked within a representative democratic framework, which was a good partner for it because it worked for the majority. Um, so there was a rise of the middle class in the West, mm. uh, including including the U.S. over the last 50 to 60 years. But since 1970s, uh, when dollar was depegged from the gold standard, and there was a new liberal. Uh, process underway through Thatcher and and, and Reagan's uh, changes uh, brought about in the system. I think the social contract has started falling apart, and mm. this is true for most of the capitalist Western world, where it does seem that there was a collusion between the political leaders and the business leaders and the military-industrial complex to just reap benefits and deprive a majority of the population from its voice. And the social contract has gradually weakened to the point where it doesn't seem to hold much respect uh, both for the people and for the politicians, which is a very dangerous situation because 
I believe that this misalignment between the social contract, the political aspirations of people, and the fact that their voices are not being heard uh, in the daily discourse uh, is a very dangerous precedent, which then allows uh, marginal groups to take hold and you know solidify their foundations in a society, something like that happened in the Nazi Germany at a point where there was a huge unrest in the society and a small group of people basically just caught up and took control mm. because uh, they were just militant enough and had uh, aspirations uh, which uh, seemed to poison down everybody else, basically. Uh, and it did give rise to a sort of a mass psychosis where some of the educated people in the West, uh, when they're asked today why were they so quiet at the Nazi revolution, will are still surprised about themselves. So we don't know what happened. Mm. But it was like a mass psychosis that took over the population and then small fringe groups take over. And and I think that uh, this is the uh, sort of the unrest, the absence of uh, social justice within the most of the world that is giving rise to this uh, friction and fragmentation of societies. And uh, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, as you said, we, we criticize West because the West actually did claim to hold the torch for the human rights conventions, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, and still is the biggest funding agent for the United Nations and international global governance institutions. Mm. So they have they are held to a higher standard. And therefore, the hypocrisy uh, is obviously more blatant mm. and is, is seen as very disturbing. Uh, you know, others don't claim that. So, you know, uh, Eastern, Far East, has its own definitions of human rights. China doesn't really talk about human rights anyway. They are more about business. So you can't really hold them to those kinds of standards. And it is this sort of growing schism, schism in the West that seems to be causing this uh, large disorientation and, and worries within the civil society uh, of which we are, we, we are witness now. So I think that um, this cannot be sustained. Mm. And somehow an alignment has to be found between popular voices and and uh, democratic practices and capitalist principles. Mm. And unfortunately, at this time, I don't see a solution. So uh, the only thing we are left with essentially is when another fringe group will just basically take over and then, which is pro probably happening in some parts of the world, including perhaps in Ukraine. And, uh, and, uh, and this might just get out of control. And, you know, we have often talked about how some of these decisions that are being made could actually result in, in a larger catastrophe. So, you know, we're just all on the brink of this. And, mm. you know, uh, the head of the Amatia movement has been talking about this for a while now. And not this, uh, and this time, I think when he spoke at the PCP, peace conference, he said that, you know, he's now getting really worried that nobody is listening to him. Uh, and unfortunately, that's the truth at the moment that, uh, mm. you know, we are hurtling towards a very, very profound uh, catastrophic event mm that you know will change the course of human history and you know probably nothing uh, like the second and the first world war where casualties are limited because now the nuclear weapons that countries hold are far larger than the ones that were dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki and and just on on that point of view that perspective so people are listening to this and probably thinking we're we're being incredibly negative 
we are outlining and describing problems with the world and the issues with the world. What's the solution? And you mentioned um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masurim, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And, and clearly the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has a particular point of view, perspective on this, which I, th- I think does offer hope, does offer uh, a perspective of there is a way out of this and there is a, there is a way through this. Um, Dr. Lim, could I, could I ask you to outline that? I mean, His, his Holiness, as a Muslim Surah, has spoken about this on many, many occasions, and it's, it's based on the, the principle of justice as a starting point. Yes, um, I think that uh, he has spoken about the concept of absolute justice many, many times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the uh, concept of absolute justice is outlined in the Muslim holy book, the Holy Quran, which talks about the fact that uh, when it comes to uh, practice of justice, uh, you should not take sides. Uh, you should be a witness to the truth. Uh, even if the if, even if there's a case against your relatives or the close ones that you have, you must stand up and speak the truth and take the side of the justice and truth. And, uh, you know, the Muslim, uh, he has spoken about the rules of warfare that the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, enunciated uh, about 1400 years back, which were, which are actually even, uh, f- they even go further, uh, further in human, uh, relieving human misery than the Geneva Conventions in 1951. Hmm. Um, very, very comprehensive. And, you know, one of the few principles he talked about was that in wars, you should never actually uh, bomb cities or civilian populations, not engage in war. You should not bomb churches, mosques, and synagogues. Um, and, you know, generally, uh, these are, uh, they were enunciated 400 years back, uh, even before the Geneva Conventions. And, so the, the concept of justice requires that party who is an aggressor should be brought to the table and there should be a negotiation for peaceful settlement of disputes and conflicts. Uh, but apparently the problem right now is that uh, that the profit motive uh, mm. you know, undermines this principle of absolute justice because there is a side to the party that will make money out of it. And they want to make money out of it at all costs, um, mm. even at the cost of human life and human misery. So it's very difficult for um, that side to see the the, the story of uh, or, or the principles of absolute justice because uh, it just doesn't doesn't work for the profit motive. Um, so I think part of the reason why his voice has not been heard is because uh, human civilization at this point in time is not ready to listen to a voice of reason. And uh, although the Islamic principles perhaps, uh, uh, in fact, definitely um, do propose a durable and long-term solution, uh, there needs to be a a consistent and long effort to actually uh, bring people around to that point of view but we don't know whether we are fighting against time. So the question is, uh, even if these, even if you have these principles, do we have enough audience? And are people ready to listen to these kinds of uh, advice? And whether that, or whether it's within, it's 
we have time enough to actually avert the large disaster. Uh, and, you know, of course, we say that it's a negative outcome if a war happens because obviously there will be human life lost. But the question is, has human civilization listened to its previous mistakes or learned from its previous mistakes and has, uh, has, has tried to actually avert some of these uh, large uh, catastrophic events? And unfortunately, there are lots of there's research papers now that say that you know equality comes back to human civilization usually after these catastrophic events. It's either epidemics mm. or large wars or so we are sort of condemned to history because we don't learn from history. Mm. Um, and it seems that this is going to be a repetition of that. But you know uh, the Holy Quran actually enunciates many many uh, wise and profound principles for both war and peace for economic peace, for social peace, and His Holiness has talked about this over the last eight to ten years in each, his, each of his peace conferences. Uh, and yet we haven't really seen any progress in that direction. It seems that the world is moving in the other direction. And, um, I mean, your, your point of view about um, where we are all headed or where, where this civilization is headed is i think an incredibly important one the the arc of history tells us that just because our civilization looks great at the moment just because western civilization for want of a, a better and, and more nuanced term looks incredible at the moment with incredible advances in technology and and the quality of life etc etc it doesn't guarantee that this will continue in fact if anything when we look at what happens with civilizations is that civilizations even those that survive for many hundreds of years and there have been civilizations in history that have flourished um, huge city-states and huge um, empires that have flourished for many hundreds of years even those ultimately they fall and they are destroyed and they um, become essentially corrupt and open to being attacked from the outside and are destroyed. Um, and this is this is a warning from history. And as you say, unless um, uh, the world, and in fact each nation, turns towards a principle of absolute justice, then uh, we are at risk of, of repeating this historical cycle. Um, and and if, there is, if there is any idea... Um, within um, the sphere of, of human understanding which we we should be looking towards is that there there should be a way of breaking out of this uh, destructive cycle um, and and clearly the way in which to do that is to reframe the way in which we think about um, society the way in, we, in which we think about nation states the way in which we think about uh, um, our relationship with each other globally around the world Indeed, the relationship uh, uh, aspect is really important. I think that uh, His Holiness has pointed out always that unless we all start accepting the, the fact that we are all God's creation and that there is one God who has created all of us as uh, human brethren, um, it is going to be difficult to actually uh, you know, come together. And uh, usually, if you look at history, um, you know that uh, when uh, the Holy Prophet uh, died within uh, 40 years of his 
that uh, the Muslim Empire had taken over, as had defeated the Persian and the Roman Byzantine Empire within the within thirty years, mm. and this they had done with almost uh, uh, nothing at their disposal, as opposed to the two large empires that were mm. on their borders. Actually, yeah. now the question is, how does a very small uh, emerging uh, ideology uh, is able to take over and basically overthrow two large empires is 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 really a question to ponder upon. And it was essentially the principles of absolute justice, uh, you know, building of human relationships, acceptance of the un- uh, oneness of God, and listening to the message of the Prophet of Islam that had given that kind of impetus for the world uh, to come together. And, you know, as Ahmadis, we do claim that we have a solution and, you know, we shouldn't be hesitant in uh, telling uh, the world that we actually do say that the current situation in the world over the last 100 years, the last 150 years, 175 years, demanded that God does send uh, another message or a prophet because humanity is in such a turmoil. And Mm. unfortunately, uh, with that arrival of a messenger, which is part of the history, we know that there is always groups which say that we don't want to accept a message from God. Uh, We don't actually believe in God and we don't really care if he exists. We will do what we want to do because we are rich, we have children, we have large tribes, and we will do what pleases us. And this is exactly the kind of attitude that you see in what I call sort of a tribal mindset in the military-industrial complex Mm. among the politicians and the large sort of financial corporations who say there is really no need to listen to any message because we are the ones who hold the power. And we are the ones who are making money out of it. So what's the point about listening to people who are humble and meek and have really nothing to add to their profit? And that, unfortunately, is uh, the the, the uh, skepticism that happens in societies when you know a, a fresh message from God has come, a warning has come, and people then tend not to listen to it and keep doing what they're doing. So then humanity is then divided into two parts, which is that one part would be the one that would follow uh, the principles um, of, of peace and belief in the in the oneness of God and creation of human brotherhood. And the other will just keep pursuing prophets. And, you know, history is a witness to the fact that those are destroyed, uh, those parts of humanity are destroyed, uh, you know, which is what, is repeated over history and unfortunately at this point in time if the dominant part of our part of, the, of our world at this point in time who holds the riches and who claims to actually govern the world would not listen the end game is essentially that uh, then they will be destroyed also like uh, other of their kind who have been destroyed as part of the history Thank you, Dr. Raleem. And I mean, a related news item uh, to this to this question, to this narrative, uh, and and really, sort of this this question of understanding why it is that nations become so entrenched in their own belief of their of of how right they are, um, and isolate other nations and and keep them in a state of of trying to keep them in a in a state of control or subservience 
with a belief that that uh, well if we don't do this then then this this nation is going to uh, somehow come for us or 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 take over or attack us um for for decades now iran has been seen as a national pri- international prior it has been isolated um internationally isolated and and this is iran is a is a great country with a long and and colorful history um and and yet at the at the moment is seen by much of the west as somehow uh, a backward isolated um solely theocratic state um and the only thing that can fix them or solve their problems is in, is is somehow western principles of of democracy and freedom and um uh, and and in that vein um you know the 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 restrictions on on what iran is able to do internationally um are are huge in terms of everything from their ability to to utilize the markets around the the use and sale of of oil um through to their ability to do to do anything from a um uh from any other uh uh point of view the uh, iran has uh, the news that has come out this week is that iran had launched a satellite into space and and huge amounts of noise and, and fear and anxiety from western nations that this was a potential nuclear threat the satellite itself um called by the iranians nur 3 and nur means light nur 3 was launched from a russian leased um launch facility in kazakhstan on on monday and iran said it was an imaging satellite that could be used for envi- environmental monitors uh, monitoring and would remain under the control of the government in iran um but obviously this is this is uh, um missile technology and so it's caused some anxiety amongst those who are aligned themselves against Iran. But the, the the question I guess that we have to we have to ask in all of this is that any modern nation state will will be thinking about how they can um develop te- technologically, how they can set themselves in a position where they are able to do all of the things that we take for granted. say in a country like the like the UK in in order to be able to do um satellite imaging to to a- a- actually um uh, do environmental monitoring as as um Iran has said what why is it the belief of western nations that somehow the only intent in every single action that a country like Iran does is uh horrific is evil minded is somehow militaristic um when when in fact what we can see from uh other nation states even so called western nation states is that often their intent is not as clear is not as straightforward why is it that we we color um uh, a nation like iran in in this particular way um and it's an it's an inf- another unfortunate example and, and and I don't know why Iran has launched this this satellite I don't I don't know that any any of the reality behind it um but the simple fact of the matter is that by um creating in Iran an international pariah state um no no matter what your 
your thoughts or beliefs on on Iran itself in terms of the Iran government and and the way in which it treats its citizens, which surely, um, in uh, in in many ways, can be condemned and looked on as negatively. Um, the question is: Is this a good way to bring a country like Iran um, into the fold of the international community? Clearly, it hasn't worked. Decades of this sort of of reaction and response has not worked and in fact has only made the world a more dangerous place what is the way in which we can reframe this entire narrative and reframe our our relationships with countries like iran in order to bring about a safer world not a more dangerous world Uh, i think that uh, the uh, history is witness to the fact that uh, you know umpires become hegemonic and Mm. they will do anything to continue and and pursue their hegemonic design mm. and we are all we also know very well that you know during the colonial expansion the portuguese the dutch the U, the, the british and the us which came at the last time as the last power that rose to sort of uh, a hegemonic power mm. uh, you know would hold and create a status of pariah for any state that would go against its hegemonic design. Mm. Uh, and if you look at the history of Iran, unfortunately, and in fact in the Middle East, you would see that many of the dictators were initially supported by uh, the Western uh, and in fact the U.S. hegemonic powers because they were serving their interests. So mm. as long as oil was flowing and you know many of these Middle Eastern countries were in fact created to make sure that the oil keeps flowing to the West, mm. including Libya, Iraq, uh, Syria, Iran, uh, you know, they were managed in such a way where uh, there was a, there was a surety that oil will flow and on the back of that oil, the industrial progress was basically uh, continued. It was only when some of these people internally in these countries started raising their heads. So, for instance, in Iran, Mossadegh then actually took over from the Shah of Iran, who was a very uh, close ally of the West. And Mossadegh had decided uh, to actually nationalize Iranian oil and start, you know, negotiating with the West for mm. better rates and uh, and some of this work. That was also part of the history that we know about Libya, where Gaddafi wanted to create an African Union. Uh, Saddam wanted to trade oil in other currencies than the petrodollar. Mm. So there were reasons why an intervention was undertaken. And the intervention was essentially not based on the fact that these were brutal dictators, but it was based on the fact that they were defying the hegemonic designs of a large uh, growing power. Uh, And it was against their interests where oil could become locked in, uh, you know, for national interests in in Iran or in Iraq or in Libya, basically. Uh, Because we know that the social indicators for Iraq were one of the best, actually, in the Middle East. It was a very fast-rising social welfare state in that sense. Of course, there was a lot of oppression on behalf of Saddam. But things are not as bad as they are now, Mm. which was an attempt by the West to introduce its model of democracy. Uh, similarly, in Libya, where we talked last time about the floods, the same uh, was repeated where we know that uh, Gaddafi was able to help together a lot of opposing factions in the Libyan tribal system. 
and the country was doing well actually but uh, it was attacked and now we have a, a basically basically a serious human disaster mm. which was perpetuated in the name of introducing western democracy and practices uh, and human rights in libya so we can see the 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 good intentions but really terrible bad terribly bad outcome and it seems that it's it gets repeated despite the fact that most people in the western nations oppose their own government policies against it so they sometimes see through this and they protest and you know that even within the uk there was a huge protest against going into iraq war millions of people turned out in central london and protested against it but there was no uh, action by the political leaders to follow that protest uh, so essentially i think that uh, we we go by the perception as the mainstream media information that we read and a lot of negative press that comes out with it about you know what countries are trying to do because there's always a tilt about the fact that they are not serving the interest of the uh, of the corporations and the military industrial complex that wants to make money out of out of these uh, you know this uh, cheap resource hydrocarbon resources that come from the middle east to the western world and it is now for the first time i think that the saudis and the russians and and iranians are working together to actually uh, repeat what happened in 1970s where an oil cartel actually started reducing the supply of oil so the real alarm is not about what iran is doing but what what iran is becoming a part of in terms of a coalition which has now just recently i think last week uh, restricted the uh, supply of oil uh, you know russia has actually banned supply of oil to many countries and mm. the oil prices are going up mm. and with the western recession and interest rates going up if you have the oil prices go up too you have a perfect recipe for economic disaster mm. because you know lots of western countries and the us of course depend on cheap resource of oil from middle east uh, middle eastern countries you know so certainly us is to a certain extent independent of that because they now have their own shale shale gas and and oil and reserves but obviously the world markets will be in turmoil and i think that the concern about iran and its satellite is not just that the symbolic event is of course that they are doing trying to do something fishy with the satellite but the real the real message is don't go there where we don't want you to go and you know uh, keep uh, the supply and the taps of oil mm. flowing into what where uh, the western economic interests are served the best so i think that i think these are sort of global events uh, when we look at small headlines mm. we need to see that there is a larger game at play in yeah. all of these situations yeah and and certainly in terms of uh, and this play, plays into a, a, another uh, very very a bigger story around climate change around protests to restrict the use of of oil the just stop oil campaign and others and uh, many in the younger generation are horrified at the idea that our continued use of oil is going to lead to this massive environmental disaster for their generation and for subsequent generations um and and they are angry and understandably angry at um the previous generations for the way in which they have acted and yet we still see governments like in the US and like in the UK in fact in the and the current government that are talking about exploiting 
oil and gas reserves here in the UK and continuing to do so, and in fact expanding drilling for oil in the UK. And you can you can see when you think about it from that perspective that what they are aiming to do is to keep the status quo in terms of um, uh, sources of cheap oil in order to be able to um, uh, main, maintain the sort of uh, economic stronghold that they have already. Now, many argue that actually, um, as far as oil is concerned and gas is concerned, these are international markets. And so even if you were to exploit local uh, production of this, then you you wouldn't be able to take advantage of it. You wouldn't It wouldn't bring about cheap um, petroleum products because it's an international market. But but of course, the, the the answer to that is that it still allows you to maintain economic control. And, and ultimately, this is what it all appears to be about. No one, uh, very few, I said uh, no one, and, and that's obviously not true. Very few politicians, sadly, seem particularly um, interested in um, real questions around climate change. There's nibbling at the at the edges to to, to greenwash their policies. Um, today we have seen a, a a ban on plastic forks and knives in the UK, um, and uh, you know it, it it will give people the impression that that the government is doing something that it cares about the environment, whereas in fact in the bigger picture they appear to be doing very little to really restrict our use of. Uh, petrochemical products and especially petrol and diesel um, uh, because these these are the things these are the impacts that are that are going to be huge and resonate through into the into the future um, and and if we were to restrict their their use in the short to medium term it probably would have an immediate economic impact on on individuals but the real reality is that without doing that we are essentially destroying the future for our children um and and so some difficult very difficult and challenging decisions need to be made yes i believe that um, the, uh, the 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 underlying problem essentially is the is the linkage between the us dollar and, and oil mm. uh, you know after the after the decoupling of uh, uh, dollar with uh, with the gold the uh, in 1970s uh, there was a very smart move by the West, by the by the U.S. actually to peg the dollar to the oil trade. Um, so it is. This is the reason why it's called petrodollar. Um, and so essentially, I think it is not so much also about the oil itself, but the link between the dollar value and the oil, because 60 percent, 70 percent of the oil trade is done in dollars. And that is behind the fact that dollar is the reserve currency and still holds the lion's share of the world reserve world reserves basically uh, and any move to actually decouple uh, oil from the dollar is a real serious danger to the world economic system as it is has been designed by the international global financial institutions and the us in this in the aftermath of the second world war Mm. Uh, so I, I think that that's the underlying issue here. Uh, you know, all the efforts actually to look and appear to be friendly to environment are essentially, as you said, a bit of a symbolic and and um, you know small efforts to mm. keep people happy. But the, the but the but the real elephant in the room essentially is the fact that until you are able to uh, 
understand the fundamental forces behind the international world order, uh, world economic order, uh, it will be difficult to get rid of the dependence on oil unless you decouple the dollar with the with the oil basically, and mm. and perhaps come up with a new basket of currencies. Mm. You know, lots of people are already talking about the Bretton Woods number three, or uh, you know, another consensus in the world to see what kind of alternative uh, reserves can be built, mm. where uh, you can then trade freely among nations without having to depend on the US dollar as, as it is right now. And that's, and that's really the crux of the matter. So I don't think there will be any real efforts at uh, mitigation of environmental disasters and climate change until there is a real deep change in the world economic uh, uh, architecture. And, and that, it, to me, at this moment in time, seems quite remote. So all the, uh, so my sympathies to all the climate activists. And uh, by the way, I, I should mention to you once, I was mm. in a large climate conference in, in India. And I remember there was a huge number of climate activists mm. there. And they were talking about how much fresh water are we wasting when we take a bath in the morning with showers. And uh, I, I remember getting up and saying, okay, so... Let me say that I volunteer taking a bath from, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, uh, not from a shower, but from from a mug, basically, mm. and say, well, can we save some water? Who is willing to join me? And there was not a single voice that, mm. <laughs> that got up and said, we will give up our showers. Mm. So even the climate activists, you know, and people who are really worried about the climate, if you ask them to deprive themselves of at least one small privilege to say, mm. if they are really serious about this will come up short. And so I think the efforts are sort of a bit, uh, uh, a bit perfunctory and, you know, uh, sort of a whitewash over what really is the underlying larger sort of forces that we are used to because of our convenience, because of our lifestyles, and the fact that uh, we are sort of drunk on the current uh, international economic order. Mm. And... Um... I mean, I guess that's the that's the real the real challenge when it comes to what governments need to do to to make a difference and to have an impact. But I guess in the last couple of minutes, people listening are going to be going. So, what do we do? What what can we do that can make a difference? Where where is the impact that we can have? Um, and um, and Dr. William, your your thoughts on that? Yes, you know, it's very interesting because um, the event that I described to you about this conference mm. uh, came to my mind when, uh, uh, you know, the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya movement once described the fact that when he heard about climate change, he had decided that he will stop using the shower and he would use a pail of water as he used to do in mm. the old days to mm. take a bath. Mm. And and we know from, from, uh, from our good friends that he actually did institute the practice in his life and never really took shower after that once he had realized that you know it's this huge amount of liters of water that can mm. be wasted when we take a shower so you know we all have to really the the hope really is bringing an individual change uh, and it is the individual change that should then give rise to a wave of changes across as we change ourselves and we take uh, into account our own uh, habits that are causing havoc to the environment and to the world peace uh, and create within ourselves an island of peace and harmony and and be in touch with nature and treat each other's each other uh, 
you know, as 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 brothers and as fellow human beings, it's not going to happen. And the change, you know, individual change, changing yourself is is the toughest part, which is why Islam describes this as the real jihad, which is that you need to reform yourself. Uh, so instead of really thinking big and macro scale changes, I think perhaps uh, my message for today is please look at your own self and say what can what kind of change you can institute within your routine days, mm. at least one change uh, for today and commit it for a year and that might that might be the answer for the whole of humanity. Thank you, Dr. Raleem. And that brings us up pretty much to the end of the first hour of today's program here on Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is 10.58. So I'd just like to thank you, Dr. Raleem, for, for participating in today's discussion. Always good to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, inshallah, we will uh, speak with you with you soon. So um, thank you again. And uh, assalamu alaikum. Thank you. That was uh, Dr. Abdul Aleem, and always um, fascinating to um, to speak with him and to talk about these issues of um, of international import and, and and really get behind some of the some of the headlines. And we we start with a discussion around what had happened in the Canadian Parliament. And it's interesting to see how, when you look behind these headlines, you you get a real understanding of what is happening uh, around the world now. After the news, um, we'll be bringing the second hour of the program in which we will bring you um, uh, a narration chapter of a book and uh, our colleagues at Rational Religion, um, their their podcast as well. Um, so keep listening, keep tuned uh, uh, to Voice of Islam and um, uh, the second hour of our program. Now, um, if you enjoy what you're listening to, then you can listen again. And go to SoundCloud and search for Weekend World and then, um, or Voice of Islam and then Weekend World, and you can listen again to our entire back catalogue of programs. Um, so do st- stay tuned and, and um, keep listening to Weekend World, uh, but do listen again. And if you want to um, tweet at us, then you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK. And that brings us up to the end of the first hour of the program. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 1st of October, 2023. This is the second hour of our programme. And in a few moments, you'll get the opportunity to listen to the narration of of a book and the podcast from our colleagues at Rational Religion. Um, thank you very much for listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. In the first hour of the program, we had the opportunity to have a live uh, discussion with Dr. Abdul Aleem uh, on uh, various topics, um, and, and especially questions of the international order and financial system and how it impacts on individuals. Um, so you can listen again uh, on SoundCloud. And, and now, Rational Religion and our book narration. This is the fourth part in a serialization of the book Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed.
Salvation cannot be monopolized by any single religion. The question of salvation, however innocent it may appear, is potent in its danger to peace in the religious world. It is one thing for a religion to declare that those who seek to be redeemed from Satan and attain salvation should rush to the safe haven of that religion. It is there that they would find salvation and eternal liberation from sin. But it is quite another thing for the same religion to declare in the next breath that those who do not come hither to seek refuge will be damned eternally, one and all. Whatever they do to please God, however much they love their Creator and His creation, however much they lead a life of purity and piety, they would most certainly be condemned to an everlasting fire. When such a rigid, narrow-minded and non-tolerant view is expressed in a provocative language, as generally is by religious zealots, it is known to have produced violent riots. People come in all shapes and sizes. Some are educated, cultured and refined, and so are their reactions to offences committed against them. Yet a large number of religiously inclined people, be they educated or illiterate, are likely to react violently when their religious sensibilities are hurt. Unfortunately, this seems to be the attitude of the clergy of almost all religions of the world against those who do not conform to their faith. Even Islam is presented by most medieval scholars as the only door to salvation, in the sense that ever since the advent of Islam, all the descendants of Adam, peace be upon him, who have lived and died outside the pale of Islam, are denied salvation. Christianity does not offer a different view, nor does any religion to my knowledge. But let me assure my audience that the attribution of this bigoted and narrow view to Islam has no justification. The Holy Quran has a completely different story to tell us in this regard. According to the Holy Quran, salvation cannot be monopolized by any single religion of the world. Even if new truths are revealed and new eras of light have dawned, for those who live a life of ignorance through no fault of their own, and those who generally try to lead a life of truth, even if they inherited false ideologies, will not be denied salvation by God. The following verses from the Holy Quran elaborate this point further. For every people we have appointed ways of worship, which they observe. So let them not dispute with thee in the matter of the Islamic way of worship, and call thou the people to thy Lord, for surely thou art on the right guidance. In another verse, the Holy Quran declares in the same context, Surely those who have believed in Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the Jews, and the Sabians, and the Christian, whoso believes in Allah, 
on the last day, and does good deeds, on them shall come no fear, nor shall they grieve. Let me remind you that although the people of the book is applicable to the Jews and Christians, potentially it has a much wider application. In the context of the Quranic assertion that there is no people in the world but we have sent a warner to them, and similar verses cited earlier, we are left with no room for doubt that these were not only the people of the Old Testament and the Gospel, or the Torah and the Injil, who were given the book, but most certainly other books were revealed for the benefit of mankind. So all religions which have a claim to be founded on divine revelation would also be included among the people of the book. Again, the Holy Quran uses the term Sabi, which further clarifies the issues and dispels doubt. Sabi is a term used by the Arabs to apply to the followers of all non-Arab and non-Semitic religions which have their own revealed books. As such, followers of all religions based on divine revelation have been granted the assurance that provided they do not fail to recognize the truth of a new religion, despite their sincere efforts to understand and stick honestly and truly to the values of their ancestral religion, they have nothing to fear from God and will not be denied salvation. The Holy Quran, speaking of whichever party from among the believers, Jews, Christians and Sabians, promises, They shall have their reward with their Lord, and no fear shall come upon them, nor shall they grieve. And, if they had observed the Torah and the Gospel, and what has now been sent down to them from their Lord, they would surely have eaten of good things from above them and from under their feet. Among them are people who are moderate, but many of them are sure that evil is what they do. To prevent Muslims from censuring indiscriminately all those who do not belong to Islam, the Holy Quran categorically declares, they are not all alike. Among the people of the book are those who are very pious and God-fearing and who stand by their covenant. They recite the word of Allah in the hours of night and prostrate themselves before him. They believe in Allah and the last day and enjoin good and forbid evil and hasten to vie with one another in good works. These are among the righteous. Whatever good they do, they shall not be denied its true reward. And Allah well knows those who guard against evil. There is a great misunderstanding today, born out of the recent political rivalries between the Jews and the Muslims, that according to Islam, all Jews are hell-bound. This is totally false, in light of what I have recited before you from the Holy Quran, and in light of the following verse. Of the people of Moses, there is a party who guides with truth, and does justice therewith. Promotion of harmony and mutual respect amongst religions. It is declared 
in unambiguous terms in the Holy Quran that it is not only the Muslims who stand firmly by the truth and admonish and dispense justice righteously. Among the believers of other faiths, there are also other people who do the same. This is the attitude which the entire world of religion must adopt today to improve the quality of the relationship with other faiths. Religious peace cannot be achieved without cultivating such broad-minded, magnanimous and humanely understanding attitudes towards the people of other faiths. Referring to all religions of the world, in general, the Holy Quran declares, Of those we have created, there are a people that guide men with truth and do justice therewith. The Universality Concept Since time immemorial, many philosophers have been dreaming of the moment when mankind can gather as one large human family under one flag. This concept of the unification of mankind has been entertained not only by political thinkers, but also by economists and sociologists alike. But nowhere has the idea been pursued with greater fervour than in the domain of religion. Although Islam also shares this view with other religions, some, having highly ambitious programs of world domination within this apparent commonality, Islam stands distinctly different in its attitude to the aforementioned ambitious claim. This is no place for developing this controversial theme further and to enter into a debate as to which religion has actually been commissioned by God to gather the whole of mankind under one divine banner. But it is very important for us to understand the implications of such claims by more than one religion of the world. If two, three or four powerful religions with long-established historical tradition simultaneously claim to be universal religions, will it not generate monstrous confusion and uncertainty in the minds of all human beings? Will their mutual rivalry and struggle for domination not pose a real and substantial threat to world peace? Such movements of global dimensions on the part of religions are a matter of grave concern themselves. But to add to that, the danger of such movements falling into the hands of an irresponsible, bigoted and intolerant leadership means that the risks will be manifold and more real than academic. In the case of Islam, unfortunately, there is widespread propaganda to the effect that Islam promotes the use of force wherever possible for the spread of its ideology. Such words emanate not only from opponents of Islam but also from medieval-minded Muslim clergy. Obviously, if one religion opts for the offensive, the others will have the right to defend themselves with the same weapons. Of course, I do not agree and strongly reject the notion that Islam advocates the use of force for the spread of ideologies. But to this aspect I will return later. 
Let us first examine the rationality of such a claim by any religion of the world. Can any religion, Islam, Christianity, or whatever you may call it, become universal in its message, in the sense that the message be applicable to all people of the world, whatever their colour, race, or nationality? What about a host of different racial, tribal, national traditions, social habits, and cultural patterns? The concept of universality, as proposed by religions, should not only transcend the geographic and national boundaries, but should also transcend time. So the question would be, can a religion be timeless? That is, can the teachings of any religion be applicable with equal fitness to the people of this age as well as to those of a thousand years ago and a thousand years hence? Even if religion was accepted globally by the entire mankind, how could it be competent enough to fulfil the needs of the future generation? It is for the followers of every religion to suggest how the teachings of their religion propose to resolve the problems discussed above. However, on behalf of Islam, I should like to summarise very briefly the Islamic answer to these questions. Islam is a universal religion. The Holy Quran repeatedly makes it clear that Islam is a religion whose teachings are related to the human psyche. Islam emphasizes that any religion which is rooted in the human psyche transcends time and space. The human psyche is unchangeable. Therefore, the religion which is truly rooted in the human psyche becomes unchangeable by the same token, provided that it does not get too involved with the transient situations of man in whatever age as he progresses forward. If the religion sticks to these principles which emanate from the human psyche, such a religion has the logical potential of becoming a universal religion. Islam goes one step further. In its uniquely understanding attitude, it describes all religions of the world as possessing this character of universality to some degree. As such, in every divinely revealed religion, there is always found a central core of teaching which is bonded to the human psyche and eternal truth. This core of religions remains unchangeable, unless, of course, the followers of that religion corrupt that teaching at a later period of time. The following verse illustrates the case in point. They, the people of the book, were not commanded but to serve Allah, being sincere to him in obedience and being upright and to observe prayer and to pay the zakat. That is the religion 
of the people of the right path. So set thy face to the service of religion, turning as one devoted to God, and follow the nature made by Allah, the nature in which he has created mankind. There is no altering the creation of Allah. That is the right religion, but most men know not. In view of the above, the question may be raised as to the wisdom of sending one religion after another with the same teaching. Further, one may wonder why Islam claims, in relative terms, to be more universal and perfect than all the previous religions, if all had the same universal, unchangeable teaching applicable to human beings at all times. Firstly, in answer to the first question, the Holy Quran draws the attention of mankind to the indisputable historical fact that the books and scriptures revealed earlier than the Quran have been tampered with. Their teachings were corrupted by a process of gradual amendment or new elements were introduced through interpolation until the validity and authenticity of these books and scriptures became doubtful and questionable. So the onus of proof that no change whatsoever has been affected, of course, lies on the shoulder of the people belonging to such religions. As far as the Quran goes, it occupies a unique and distinct position amongst all religious books and scriptures. Even some of the staunchest enemies of Islam, who do not believe the Quran to be the word of God, have to confess that the Holy Quran, without a shadow of doubt, remains the same unchanged and unaltered book which was claimed by Muhammad, peace be upon him, to be the word of God. For instance, there is otherwise every security internal and external that we possess the text which Muhammad himself gave forth and used. We may upon the strongest assumption affirm that every verse in the Quran is the genuine and unaltered composition of Muhammad himself. Slight clerical errors there may have been, but the Quran of Uthman contains none but genuine elements, though sometimes in very strange order. The efforts of European scholars to prove the existence of later interpolations in the Quran have failed. It is a completely different domain of controversy as to which book was authored by whom, but the same book, whose authorship by God, is challenged by the other people of the book, stands witness to the fact that not only the Torah and the Injil, collectively the Old Testament and the Gospels, were authored in part by God himself, but also other books belonging to different religions in other parts of the world were, without question, also authored by the same God. Only the contradictions one finds in them today are man-made. Need it be said that the attitude of the Holy Quran is by far the most realistic and conducive to peace among religions. As to the second question, the Holy Quran draws our attention to the process of evolution in every sphere of human society. 
new religions were needed, not only for the sake of restoring the fundamental teachings of older religions, which had been mutilated at the hands of man, but also, as society evolved, more teachings had to be added to previous ones to keep up with the pace of progress. Thirdly, that is not all. Another factor at work in this process of change was the element of time-related secondary teachings which were revealed to meet only the requirements of a certain people or period. This means that religions were not only made of central cores of unchangeable principles, but were also dressed up with peripheral, secondary and even transient teachings. Last but not least, man was not educated and trained in divine instructions in one single stride, but he was gradually carried forward step by step to a stage of mental adulthood where he was considered fit and mature to receive all the fundamental principles which were needed for his guidance. According to the Quranic claim, a secondary teaching, inseparably based on everlasting fundamental principles, was also revealed as a part of the final, perfect and consummate religion, that is, Islam. That which was of a purely local or temporary character was abrogated or omitted. That which was still needed henceforth was provided and retained. This, in essence, is the Islamic concept of religious universality, which Islam claims to possess. It is for man to investigate and judge the comparative merit of different claimants. Now, once again, we turn to the question of such religions which have set themselves the goal of global ascendancy. Clearly, Islam does entertain such ambitions. By way of prophecy, the Holy Qur'an declares that Islam is destined to emerge one day as the sole religion of mankind. He it is who has sent his messenger with the guidance and religion of the truth, that he may cause it to prevail over all religions, even if those who associate partners with God do not like it. Despite its commitment, to the promotion of peace and harmony between various religions. Islam does not discourage the competitive dissemination of messages and ideologies with a view to gaining ascendancy over others. In fact, it sets the ultimate ascendancy of Islam over all other faiths as a noble goal which must be pursued by the adherents of Islam. Speaking of the Holy Founder, peace be upon him, of Islam, the Holy Qur'an states, Say, O mankind, truly I am a messenger to you all from Allah, to whom belongs the kingdom of the heavens and earth. There is no God but he. He gives life, and he causes death. So believe in Allah and his messenger, the Prophet, the Immaculate One, who believes in Allah and His words, and follow Him, that you may be rightly guided. However, 
to preempt frictions and misunderstandings, Islam prescribes a set of clear-cut rules of conduct which guarantee fair play, absolute justice, freedom of speech, right of expression, and the right of disagreement for all alike. William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, has some interesting criticisms of Islam. We're going to uh, watch them together and then we're going to deconstruct them. Let's have a look. Now, I gave two reasons why I think the Islamic conception of God is not wholly true. First, it seems to me morally inadequate. Notice that he agrees with me that God as the perfect being must be all-loving. So the issue here is, is the God of the Quran all-loving? And he says, yes, he is, because the word wadud is affirmed of God, that he's full of love uh, and, and compassion. But Dr. Badawi then gives away his case by saying in the next sentence, he is willing to forgive those who will turn back to him. Thus, you see, God's love is conditional. It is not toward sinners and unbelievers. It is not an unconditional love. As Daud Rahbar in his book, The God of Justice, writes, unqualified divine love for mankind is an idea completely alien to the Quran. Nowhere do we find the idea that God loves mankind. God's love is conditional. Jesus says in Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And yet this is the highest level to which the God of the Quran rises in his love for human beings. He loves those who love him, who turn to him. In fact, Dr. Badawi, in his uh, brochure on building bridges between Christians and Islam, virtually admits this. Listen to what Dr. Badawi says. He says, correct belief and good deeds are prerequisites for God's grace and forgiveness and for rising above our common shortcomings. You see, it, grace that requires prerequisites, it's not truly grace. Um, so he has said that uh, God in the Quran, so obviously he's in a debate with Badawi, yeah. um, and he's saying that this gentleman has said that God is al-wadud, which means the loving, yeah. uh, and he has then said that's equivalent to the Christian conception of all loving, and said that in Christianity, God is actually all loving because um, he loves you unconditionally. Whereas in Islam, God loves you if you turn towards him and have a relationship with him. And he doesn't love those who are the disbelievers and mm. those who are his enemies. Yeah. Um, and he said that this is a moral deficiency in the Islamic conception of God. Mm. And then he goes on to characterize the relationship of, uh, of Muslims, as they say it, with God as kind of wages. So he says, this isn't, this isn't, this is, this is a we transaction. We haven't got to that yet, have we? No, he, he just mentioned that. Okay. So he's saying, well, this, this is talking about wages, whereas in, um, in Christianity, he says that it's unconditional grace. Um, 
which we'll talk about. Uh, okay, so go, go back a little bit. I have to say I really like William Lane. Uh, and actually, let's let's say also, I, I as a generality, I, 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 as yeah, I really, I just, I do want to say this. Just even, even the watching, character of his, criticism. even watching him and and the char- exactly the character of criticism, I really like him as a person, hmm. and I can see that if I knew him, I'd actually be good friends with the man hmm. because he's very sincere. Yeah, actually, he comes across as somebody who is very sincere. Yeah, and I really like the fact that he's also really focused and become well known for his um, uh, arguing for the existence of God from his logical premises through the Kalam, through the Kalam you know, you know, whatever it may be, you know, uh, and he's done a great job popularizing that. Hmm. Uh, but even just watching him, I actually like the man. Yeah. I do want to say that. Uh, he's not like some critics of Islam who you uh, could get the sense they're a bit more ethno-culturally motivated. Yeah. Um, he sticks to arguments. He yeah. He, arguments. He, he's a very much, uh, here are my criticisms. Let me break them down for you. Yeah. Answer them. Yeah. And I mentioned the Kalam because, you know, he, he obviously is famous in the Kalam cosmological argument and he gives due, due credit to the Muslim philosophers for uh, for developing that and yeah. he uses essentially their formulation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do like the guy. He does some fantastic work. Uh, probably worth worth saying that at the beginning, actually. Yeah. Uh, but these are these are some criticisms which he has. Um, so hopefully we've summarized the first part of it. Should we watch the next part of it? For God's grace and forgiveness and for rising above our common shortcomings. You see, it's grace that requires prerequisites. It's not truly grace. We're talking about wages here, about earnings. And uh, this isn't just my Western interpretation. Mohammed Zia uh, Ullah, in his book, The Islamic Conception of God, he is a a Muslim, uh, explains the attribute of God being all-merciful by saying God rewards our deeds fully. That's what the mercy of God means. He rewards our deeds fully. And he says, we cannot have the least doubt that he will respond to our love by his. You see, it's conditional. It's to those who love him. Those are the ones he assigns love to. So the Kagan says things like, God loves those with goodwill toward others. God loves those who incline to him. God loves those who are clean of heart. God loves those who are ready to fight in his cause. God loves those who prove steadfast in trials. Well, how do you measure up? Does God love you? Not unless you measure up to those standards. Now, Dr. Badawi says, well, look, it just means that God doesn't love the unbelievers' deeds, and he loves the deeds of the believers. Well, I hope that's true. I really do, but that's not what the Quran says. And he didn't give any argument or proof for that exegesis. The plain statements of the Quran are that God is an enemy to unbelievers. He doesn't love them. He loves those who love him and do good. Uh, Dr. Badawi says, in fact, then he goes on to say, I reject the idea of God's equal love of sinner and believer. Well, that is exactly my point. The most perfect being must love sinner and believer alike. That doesn't mean he blinks at sin. On the contrary, he he must punish sin. And that's why Christ had to die. But God's love as the greatest conceivable being must be impartial and unconditional. Dr. Budiwi quotes the Hadith. But all that proves at best is that it contradicts the Quran. Not that that it's correct. And besides, even in those quotations he read, God's love was still conditional. So I'm not convinced that the Islamic conception of God is morally adequate. I've got a really great quote to begin with, though. Okay, go for it. So Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. (laughs) Hmm. Do not commit adultery, do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy mother and thy father. But then Christians always say, yeah, but read the rest of it. 
Well, the rest of it says, I have done this since my youth. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet thou lackest one thing, sell all that thou hast, distribute it to the poor, and thou shalt have the treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Okay. Right. But the basic answer was, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, how was it, what was the basic question? The basic question was, how do I inherit eternal life? Yeah. Right? Now, presume... Now... Salvation? I think... I think... I Yeah. I think we should keep this in our back pocket and come back to it, actually. Hmm. I want to say something before that, which is that I think Dr. Budawi, whoever he was who was debating with William Lane Craig, made a fundamental error, hmm. right? And the fundamental error is he's trying to defend an unjust position. Hmm. You know, he says... And an unquranic position. And an unquranic position. Craig picked up. And Craig is absolutely correct. The Quran does not support the idea that God has... We should call him Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, yes. yes. I do like him. So... <laughs> Dr. Craig, you know, the, 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 he's absolutely right. The Quranic position is not that God loves the, 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 the one who's disobedient and rebellious to him mm. like he loves the one who's obedient. Mm. And, and the Quran itself says this. It says, do you expect that God should treat those who are rebellious like those who are obedient, mm. right? In the same way that their life and their death should be equal to one another? Yeah. To do so would be to equate goodness and evil disobedience to god and obedience to god as one and the same thing yeah yeah in which case it would require god to have no see no value in himself yeah see the premise of it is that a person is valuing god and is obedient to him mm. so for god to treat the disobedient like the obedient oh, i see what you mean That's would a great require point. for god to see no value in himself yeah Right? But he knows himself. <laughs> but, but it's God who describes himself as worthy of all praise. Yeah. So the Quran gives you the answer in that. In that in yeah. That so, I mean, the entire, the uh, there's so much to unpack here, which is what Lane Craig says wrong, I think. Yeah. Um, I think, let's start from the, well, let's go through the Islamic position of Rahman, Rahim, Wadud. Yeah, yeah. I think he's muddled up completely, or Badawi has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, to give Wadud as the as the argument and not Rahman is madness. Okay, so I mean, this so is, you, this you is, this is hard. That. So may Allah help us because this is this is three <laughs> minutes of of, first, of you know argumentation to to unpick on the fly. But essentially, the the overall form of his argument is the um, the Islamic conception of God is inferior to the Christian conception of God. It is so because the Christian conception of God is one which is more perfect. It is more perfect because the Christian conception of God is that God is all loving and that his love is unconditional. So let's stop there. Okay. And let's analyze the Christian conception of God. Let's take the argument bit by bit. Uh, yeah, you start with okay. the Christian conception okay. of God. So he's saying the Muslim conception is inferior to the Christian conception. So let's find out what they, if the claim that yeah. the Christian conception of God is that he is all loving stands the test. Sure. Right. And that his love is unconditional. Because that's basically what it did. And that his, love say, his love is unconditional. And this is, you know, and whereas in the Islamic conception of God, it's, it's conditioned upon your deeds and your character. Yeah. So it's absolutely false. Yeah. Absolutely false. So the Christian conception of God, at the very minimum, requires you to believe in the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay. Christians themselves believe that if you do not believe in the death of Christ and accept it into your life, right? that you will be punished eternally for a finite number of sins, mm -hmm. right? That eternal punishment awaits the one who does not believe that Jesus died for your sins, okay? Yep. That is clearly a condition. So the idea that Jesus, God is unconditionally loving people is nonsense because there's a clear condition. You have to believe in Jesus' life, the sacrifice for you to uh, attain God's love eternally. And if you don't, it's eternal damnation, 
Mm. That's pretty serious. Think about what eternity means here. Yeah. Unending, all right? Okay. So he's infinitely unjust. He's infinitely unjust because you can't punish an, a finite number of evil yeah. with an infinite amount of sin. No matter how long your life is, no matter how much denial you made of Jesus, it's still a finite amount. Yeah. Right? So, you know, that in itself is totally false. The second and very important thing to point out is that God doesn't unconditionally, according to the Christian conception, love anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... Uh, you say what you wanted to say there because I want to come back and... Okay, well, I mean, the simple answer is is that because, you know, what is love? Oh, okay, fine. What is love? (laughs) (laughs) So so what is love? Love, at the end of the day, you know, and this is often framed as God is all forgiving. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. But in the Christian conception of God, God has not shown forgiveness to any individual in human history Mm -hmm. because he's punished all all of the people who disbelieve in Jesus. He's going to punish them eternally for their sins. Yeah. All the people who believe in Jesus, God's already punished all their sins on Jesus. Yeah. So there is not a single sin that God has forgiven. So it's a very strange condition of love whereby you have absolutely no forgiveness in you whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, the hallmark of love is forgiveness. Mm. Is that when somebody does wrong, you say, don't worry about it. It's okay. I love you. You made a mistake. Let's move on as if it didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. To be above the problem. But God is so utterly un- unloving. Unloving. Yeah. Is that he had to punish all of the sins of mankind upon them if they don't believe in Jesus. And all of the sins that they committed or will ever commit if they believe in Jesus are on Jesus. So he hasn't forgiven a single one. Yeah. And yet Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, oh Lord, forgive us as we forgive those who, uh, as, oh Lord, forgive, forgive our trespasses as, as we forgive those who f- uh, trespass against us. Yeah. Right. But the way we trespass against, uh, the way we forgive other people hmm. is actually greater than the forgiveness well, of God. we forgive people. Yeah, because because God doesn't. He yeah. punishes. He only punishes. Yeah. Right? So the idea that God firstly unconditionally loves anybody is false. There's mm-hmm. clear conditions according to the Christian theology. And the second thing is even... Uh, well, the condition is one of punishment. If you believe in Jesus, then all of your sins have been punished on yes. Jesus. So there's no action of love. So there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no forgiveness there. There's no activity of love. No activity of love there. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to be punished eternally. So there's no, there's no activity of love there. There's no forgiveness there. So God is not forgiving. So it's a condition, but not of love. Yeah. <laughs> so it's un, it's conditioned. Um, punishment. It's. I don't even know what to call it. It's almost like. Con- it's just awful. It's a, it's a, it's a very it's a very difficult. You know, it's he's saying it's it's unconditional love. It's conditioned non-love. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. It's conditioned uh, outcome as punishment. Yeah. Um. And the second thing I was thinking is that it's so ironic that he's talking about this is wages. That the granite conception is you, know, you do good deeds, and it's uh, and these are wages you're being paid. It's like isn't it? It's a Christian idea that is you know sin, of sin as wages. Yeah. That the, the wages of sin are death. Yeah. You have to that the that sin has to be paid off. Yeah, exactly. this is a Christian idea that everything is cr- transactional. That sin is debt, and that for some reason God is un- unable to forgive debts as well. <laughs> he is. He is. Um, he he is held to the the, uh, the metaphysical transcendental bank, and he's just the uh, the the collector, uh, the debt enforcer who has to punish you. Yeah. 
So there's no love, there's no forgiveness, there's nothing there. Um, okay, so we've set, we've deconstructed the Christian concept of concept of conditional unconditional love. Yeah. What's the Islamic condition concept of God that he has perhaps misunderstood? Yeah, and perhaps Mr. Badawi has misrepresented. Yeah, Mr. said. Um, the the Quran kind of gives two master attributes of God, which is Rahman and Rahim. Yeah. And Rahman means um, unconditional mercy and grace. So it's that expansive kind of grace which touches us even before we are born in the existence of creation, in the nature of the universe, in the existence of the earth, the sun and the moon, the food that we eat. All of this is grace which we did nothing for. We're born into this world to parents. We have all these wonderful things around us. Even if we have difficult lives, we have this, and we have, most fundamentally, the greatest blessing God has given us is this capacity to prayer, uh, to pray, this ability to know God intrinsically, that there is a God and, and an ability to, uh, to pray to God. So this and so many other things in our lives are things which we did nothing to, we we didn't deserve them. They are just there and given to us by God. So this is an enveloping mercy. And this is the the Quranic conception that my mercy encompasses all things. Yeah, it's the verse of the Quran. It's the verse of the Quran. Actually, in the full verse, I believe, is, you know, uh, I I punish you. Let me look it up. Sure. Um, Yeah, my, uh, it's about God's anger, isn't it? Uh, but he yeah. says, my mercy envelops all I things. I punish whom I will. I punish whom I will, but is that the whole thing? Yes, yeah, so it's an ordain for us good in this world as well as in the next. We have turned to the in repentance. So it's the end portion of a prayer. Hmm. God replied, I will inflict my, inflict my yeah. punishment on whom I will, but my mercy encompasses all things. So I will ordain it for those who act righteously and pay the zakat and those who believe in our signs. Ooh. It's very interesting that he says, my punishment on whom I will, but my mercy encompasses all things. In other words, my mercy encompasses my punishment. Hmm. Well, because in the Islamic conceptions, that of a finite hell of suffering as a means of Say that again. Of Say that again for the people in the back. The Islamic conception is that of a finite, non-eternal hell where you are punished only as a means of, ultimately, as a means of reformation. Yeah. So that if you do not choose to uh, submit yourself to God voluntarily, you will be shown the error of your ways because that is the, the only avenue left to you yeah. through punishment and through the suffering of being transformed against your will yes. in the next life yes. into a being that has... That can, is capable of having a relationship with God. Which then continues eternally. Which, and then you have eternal heaven. And then you have eternal heaven. So you have non-eternal Islam. Here's what Christianity says. Infinite punishment for those who uh, don't believe. And for those who do believe, for some reason, Jesus is able to pay that off in three days. <laughs> so even though everyone else has to pay off infinitely, Jesus was able to pay off everyone else's in three days. No explanation given as to why. Uh, whereas in the Quran, it says um, punishment is finite and the uh, and heaven is as infinite. Yeah, and the right. Prophet Muhammad described this multiple times in different types of hadith. Ones that said that the doors of hell will rattle in the wind on account of having been emptied. Another one describes the condition of the last person to leave hell and his conversation with God as he exits hell and he goes to paradise and finds it to be appear to be full and God laughing mm. and then God giving him, would you like the like of the world and seven times over and you know. So there's 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 lots of hadith which talk about that last person who leaves hell. So mm. it's, it's absolutely clear from the Quran and the Hadith. That and it's in the Quran as well. Yeah. And it's in the Quran as well. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So um, so what we were saying there is that the Quranic conception is that you have Rahmaniyat, which is this enveloping mercy. Yeah. Whereas in Christianity, you have enveloping punishment. Yeah. Islam, God's mercy envelops all things. In the Bible, God's punishment envelops all things. Yeah. Um, and then you have Rahimiyat. God is not just Rahman, but he is Rahim. Yes, he rewards you, but he got it wrong here when he says that he just pays you your wages. Yeah. That's not the Quranic conception. Yeah, false. Which, okay, he, that, 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 this is a 
theological point which probably wasn't presented to him. Yes, true. So he's probably not even aware of the concept. Yeah. Rahimiyat in Islam it's is... extraordinary how generous we are with people we like. <laughs> That's true. Jordan <laughs> 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 didn't get the same treatment. Jordan did not treatment. get the same treatment for him. Um, Although I like him in some respects, you know. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great with psychology, isn't he? Um, and many cultural... Um, yeah, commentaries. Commentary, yeah. Uh, but as I was saying, in Islam you have Rahimiyat that is... Um, uh, conditional grace, you can say, hmm. where God does reward you out of his Rahmanit. He chooses to reward you. Yes. So his Rahmanit, his unconditional grace determines that he will also reward you yes. for your actions, something yes. he doesn't have to do, yes. but he has made that part of him, or rather that, that is a part of him which he expresses to you. Yes. But not. it's not simply that he rewards you for what you've done. He rewards you much more than you deserve. Yes. Uh, it's something which is uh, ultimately the reward is unending. Yes. For your finite finite, finite efforts. Yeah, for your finite efforts. Good point. For your finite efforts, God rewards you infinitely. Yeah. And God rewards you much more than you than you do. I mean, there are, you know, it's all in the Quran Hadith about how much more your your virtues are rewarded, you know, 70, 700 times over, so much more than they deserve, whereas your sin is only punished proportionally. Yeah, chapter 6, verse 160 to 161, depending on your numbering of the Quran. Uh, Whoso does a good deed shall have 10 times as much. <coughs> that, that's as a minimum. Yeah. But he who does an evil deed shall have only a like reward mm. and they shall not be wrong. Like requital, yeah. And they shall not be wronged. Mm. You know, this idea that um, there's, there's, so what you've said is there's Rahman and Rahim. There's God who gives unconditional grace, which is your entire existence, frankly. Yeah. And all of the ecosystem, the sun, the moon. And spiritual opportunities, yeah. Your spiritual opportunities, your faculties, everything yeah. is a manifestation of God's love to you. And then there's Rahim. Of God's mercy. Of God's mercy. Of God's mercy, correct. And then there's a rahimiyat, which is when you proceed, make an effort towards God, God comes, cl- uh, rewards you far more than you deserve. Yeah. And as a hadith says, if you walk to God, God runs to you. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, if you yeah. move an arm's length to God, God moves uh, yeah, a fathom's length, etc. So, so many of us still don't know what that means. Many, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, so, <clears throat> um, so then there's, so there's Rahman, which is pre-action. Yeah. And then there's Rahim, which is post-action. So after That's you, good way of it. after you make an effort, mm, yeah. So I would like to now focus on two things. The first thing is that George, um, William, Dr. Craig here, <clears throat> and Dr. Craig here. I'd like to ask him two questions. The first is is um, what is his concept of you know his worldview with free will? You know, free will actually demonstrates that his worldview is incoherent. Okay. Explain. You know, so free will, he he knows, he he admits and he's spoken about, he talks about free will and the importance of it, etc., right? So he believes in free will. But mm. if God's love is to be unconditional yeah. and not conditional about your on your free will and on your actions, then what's the point in giving yeah. us free will <laughs> yeah, in the first true. place? Yeah. So, you know, this very notion that we are the superior creation by well, virtue. I guess you freely choose whether to believe in Jesus. Yeah, but then that becomes That's a condition. condition. Yeah. That's a condition. That, that becomes a condition, as we pointed out. Yeah, so, so the very notion is back into the condition. Exactly. So the fact that God has given you free will is indicative that He is going to reward those who act yeah. in a particular way, as opposed to those who do not act. And the, the second thing I'll say that's the first thing is that free will renders the entire conception hmm. of His that you know why should God uh, not be unconditionally loving yeah. completely incoherent because clearly God has given you free will. So from God's perspective, he expects you to act in a particular way. Otherwise there's no notion of free will it has no meaning, has no value. It's a purposeless act by God. Why give people free will if it doesn't matter whether they use it or not? 
Yeah. Right. The second imp- important thing I think is that what is love? No, it's 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 why expect unconditional love from God in the first place? Mm. Like I don't understand it. Like he's holding God first. He defines that God, you know, only the the morally you know valid concept of God is one who is who is unconditionally loving. All right. Why? Yeah. Like why is why? that more perfect? Why is why is it more perfect that a God? should not at all recognize the efforts of one over another mm. and should treat them both equally. It requires God to be blind. It requires God to be blind. And moreover, if we are made in the image of God, is there any individual who will treat one who loves him and one who hates him in the same way? Yeah. One who denies his existence, one who hates him, one who persecutes his believers and the ones who love him? Yeah. Which being is there who is made in the image of God mm. who will treat the one who is the oppressor of the one he loves and the one who is kind and loving to him? Who, which man would do that? The Christians who are fed to the lions in, the, in Roman times, according to him, God loves the, God loves the, the feeders and the fed uh, to the same extent. Yeah. It's all unconditional love all around here. Yeah, so, I mean, I would argue with the very premise. I mean, if I was in that debate, with, you know, as Mr. Badawi, I would, I would say on what, on what, what basis is the, they talk about just God? Where's the justice in loving the oppressor and the oppressed to the same extent, in the same way? And where's the justice in punishing finite sin infinitely? Uh, and where's the, where's, the, where's, the, where's the act of love in not forgiving ever? But I, I don't... I, the, the thing By is... By virtue of the fact that you've punished Jesus or you've punished all the individual. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't even make sense to say... This isn't what love is. Yeah, exactly. Love is something special. Yeah, exactly. The, the point of love is that it's something which is which is extra, which is, which is, it's a special place in your heart, mm. which is, which is, has a degree of exclusivity. Mm. If love is all encompassing, it's not love. You don't love anybody if you love everybody in a sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, especially on a divine scale, you know, humans, you can say, you know, love everyone in the sense of you, um, it's a, it's a shorthand for appreciate everyone, you know, understand everyone, have a baseline sense of, uh, compassion to everyone, mm. but in terms of actual, real kind of divine love, the idea that that can be given without any kind of exclusivity renders it pointless. Mm. It means that there's no special, there's no special uh, meaning to it. So, in summary, in a way, the Muslim conception of God is not that God loves everybody; yeah. He shows grace to everybody. Yeah, He shows mercy and grace to everybody. Mercy Unconditional to mercy and grace to everybody. Rahman. Then he expresses love for those who turn to him and, and well. Then he shows conditioned grace. Conditioned grace, yeah, which is of a heart, which is of the nature of love, right? Yeah. And well, that, well, well, and I, that con- well, and that concept of God hmm. as having unconditional grace and then conditional love. Still, God behaves better <laughs> than in the concept of God, where apparently he shows unconditional love, but doesn't actually enjoy any love whatsoever to anyone. Yeah, but shows universal punishment. Universal punishment. Should we sum up then? Should we sum up uh, briefly? Um, the argument, the flow of the argument from Dr. Craig is that uh, the Christian conception of God is superior because in the Christian conception of God, God is unconditionally loving. In the Muslim conception of God, uh, God is conditionally loving. That's basically it. This is false because in the Christian conception of God, God is is uh is punishing you no matter who you are or there is punishment no matter who you are Hmm. that if you believe in jesus god is punishment punishing jesus that's where atonement comes from and uh 
and God is punishing everyone infinitely who doesn't believe in Jesus. Yeah. So it is both, it is not unconditional because there is a condition <laughs> and it is not love because it's basically... Because there's no act of love. Because, because there's no forgiveness. Hate. There's, there's no forgiveness. Yeah. There's it's no almost like conditioned hate. Yeah. You know, in the sense of it's you will you will pay for what you did, or someone or, else, will. or Jesus will, right? You know exactly. So it's 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 actually the conceptions of God that you have. If I just put it crudely, to be honest, is 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 uh, unconditional mercy because that's the Quranic conception. Yes, that you have unconditional mercy, and then you have conditioned grace, which earns you the love of God. So you have this conception of God versus a kind of conditioned hate, which is what. Um, St. Paul offers us. Yeah, to be clear, we don't believe this is what Jesus taught. Yeah. We believe this is what St. Paul interpolated into Jesus' work. I think a really nice, you said, let's summarize. So I think a nice, uh, I, you know, the Quran, how can you better hmm. the words of God for, for for summarizing? And I never really appreciated this verse until we've had this conversation hmm. of the dichotomy between the Christian and the Islamic conception of God. So this is chapter 45, verse 22, 21, if you're in a Quran, which doesn't count, the Bismillah is the first verse. It says, <coughs> Do those who commit evil deeds think that we shall make them like those who believe and do righteous deeds, so that their life and their death shall be equal? Evil indeed is what they judge. Mm. And Allah has created the heavens and the earth in, occur in accordance with an eternal law, so that every soul may be requited for that which it earns, and they shall not be wronged. So, I mean, it goes on. I could keep going because it's, um, well, I will actually. <laughs> Hast thou seen him? This is an amazing conclusion to this. Hast thou seen him who has taken his desire for his God mm. and whom Allah has adjudged astray on the basis of his knowledge and whose ears and whose heart he has sealed up and on whose eyes he has put a covering? Who then will, uh, will guide him after Allah has condemned him? Will he not then take heed? So in other words, it's saying that... Um, I mean, the first point was that how can it be, do those who commit evil deeds things that we shall make them like those who believe and do righteous deeds? Do you think we're going to unconditionally love you? Yeah, basically, exactly. Evil is, the, is that which they judge. That would be evil to do. But, that, is un, that is not becoming of a, of a just God and a, and a loving God. Absolutely. And then God points out, his, this is an op operation in accordance with an eternal law, hmm. right? And that every soul may be requited for what it earns. Okay. Yeah. And, and an eternal law which was expressed through all the line of prophets before Jesus and through Jesus and through Muhammad, peace be upon him. Exactly. The aberration is, is Christianity. Pauline doctrine. It's Pauline doctrine. Yeah, doctrine. And then the last one is, have you seen him who takes his desire for his God? So in other words, this notion that God's going to unconditionally love you no matter what you do yeah, yeah. is actually born... Permissiveness. It's permissiveness. It's born out of a desire to have whatever you want in life and say, yeah. God, Jesus Jesus died for my sins so I can, you know, I can, have, I can sleep with her and I can eat that and I don't have to be circumcised and don't have to do that and don't have to do that because God's going to love me unconditionally. Yeah. Right. So this idea that you are, you want, you want unconditional love, right? Which isn't unconditional anyway because you've had to believe in Jesus, but mm. you frame it in your mind as that, um, is because it gives you a cover for your desires mm. to be fulfilled because you don't want to have to submit mm. your way of life to God's decree and decisions and directions. I do wish Christians would read the, the Quran, especially the translation of the Ahmadi Muslim community, any of them, but the Mulvi Sher Ali one is excellent. The Zafrullah Khan, Hazrat uh, Zafrullah Khan one is excellent. Hazrat Mulvi Sher Ali as well. <laughs> Mulvi Sher Ali, of course. Um, because what, you know, I, I, I've more recently actually properly kind of read the Bible, like in, in not fully, obviously, but, but large swathes of it yeah. or, or, or parts of it. 
and I was really, sh- I, I felt really bad for the Christians because I was like, this is what you have. Um, and this is so inferior to the Quran. It's, it's almost, it's, it's in the same category in the sense of it's a religious text, but it's so different and it's so page to page, contradiction to contradiction, a conception of God that is almost, and it's actually insulting. It's actually in, in yeah, many, many senses. And if Christians were to, but yet still somehow many Jews and Christians find in that enough to give them a degree of a kind of uh, uh, a wanting of God and a degree of appreciation and love of God, which is commendable. Which shows how strong the human desire is. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah, 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 yeah. But if they were to read the Quran, they would find, you know, in, in one page, they would find more than they ever found in the whole, in the whole Bible. Um, so I would say, but, you know, Christians take a chance. Go go read the Quran. Um, we'll link the um, go hell for leather. Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> go, well, we'll link the, the the translations we recommend uh, in the in the description box below. Yeah, uh, because I think you'll be shocked. And we know we know Christians. We know people from a Christian background who've read the Quran and they're just like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, looks like looks like Islam is true. <laughs> yeah, don't know how my family's going to deal with this one. <laughs> this has been Weekend World on the Voice of Islam Radio on today, Sunday, the first of October, two thousand and twenty-three. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.